0: Hello and welcome back to Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. It's my final podcast for the year, and apart from load shedding, the extraordinary passage utterly unscathed of the National Health Insurance Bill through Parliament and onto President Soro Ramaphosa's desk, and the fairly um, uh, alarming behaviour of the ANC Secretary-General Figule Mbalula in response to the resignation of a vastly decent and capable uh, ANC veteran, uh, Mabuso Msemang from the party uh, late last week and the launch just after that um, of uh, on Sunday of a political vehicle for business um, figured Roger Jardine stands out. Jardine, a former CEO of Avenge and Prime Media and immediate past chairman of Firstrand, launched his move. Change starts now. Yeah, where he grew up in Riverlea, Johannesburg. We can't go on like this, he seemed to say. And, and uh, the ANC of old, the one his dad, Bill Jardine, took to the streets to support as a member of the United Democratic Front in the 80s was no more. He a former ANC stalwart, Murphy Morobe, in support, something else that seems to have uh, startled Mbalula. It was, uh, I have to say, a low-key and even uninspiring occasion. My understanding is that he will also register a party, a political party, ahead of next year's general election. And the idea seems to be to somehow leverage the existing opposition parties, including the DA and others in the multi-party charter, into a force for change that um, that would eventually see him elected president. Should the ANC, as early polls suggest, not make it past the post, not get more than fifty percent of the vote, but it's all very vague and it's all very late. And the launch, frankly, asks more questions than it answers. And I thought the absolute best person to comb through the aftermath of the launch would be easily the most knowledgeable and astute political veteran I know, former DA leader, Tony Leon. So, Tony, thanks so much for joining me here today. What the hell is going on here? Does Roger Jardine somehow get onto the DA election list, or does the MPC somehow select him as the presidential candidate? It all seems so fuzzy and so unlikely.
1: Well, it does seem, as you say in your intro, Peter, clear as mud. Uh, I understand... And really, there's an understanding, not a certainty that the idea is that Roger Jardine could somehow act as a bridge to a number of disaffected, uh, previously high profile ANC or struggle veterans to sort of get together. And then there would be a high level of cooperation, I think, primarily with the DA and then presumably with the other multi-party charter parties. I I think that's the idea how it's executed, whether it happens and whether it will achieve its objective and how that's going to be done is, as you say, entirely speculative at this stage. It, it was as it was very uh, vaguely spelt out to the extent things were spelt out on Sunday at what you describe as a, a rather low-key uh, kickoff. But let's see. Uh, I do understand there have been meetings, it has been in the public domain with the DA and Roger Jardine, I don't know that they've been meetings with the other charter parties, and I don't know at the end of the day, come election day, whether Roger Jardine's Change Start Now is going to appear on the ballots. My understanding, and once again, this is uh, an understanding, is that it uh, was not going to finally be a political party contesting for votes, but it would be some sort of movement. But maybe that's changed, and. Uh, as you know, and this, you are not either, I'm not privy yeah. to the inner workings of this movement. Yeah. But if I could just say one thing. I, look, you know, one can argue uh, ad infinitum about how this will uh, pan out, whether it will work, and what the strategic objectives are. But I think if you start at the end, as the late Dr. Kissinger said, what's the end goal? The end goal must be to prize as many... People away from voting A and C in a legitimate way as possible, and if this change start now, starts now is a vehicle for doing that, and one that can co-operate and cohabit with the principal opposition parties, primarily the DA. I think it should be supported. If it's not the objective or can't be attained, then I think it's going to be self-defeating. But so it's all open to speculation at this stage.
0: I mean, do you do you have any sense of how the DA, particularly the DA party leadership, feels about Jardine? I mean, I, I'm reluctant to name his funders because I don't have all their names, but the ones I do know have been DA funders for for absolutely ever. Um, and w- I, what do you think they think they're doing? Surely they're not going to be funding someone to go out and oppose the DA. Well, look, I I can't speak
1: for them, obviously, Peter, and I I do know some of them or some of the names you mentioned, and I think the last thing that they would have in mind is an opposition to the opposition, if you can put it like that. I think they want to build legitimately the best possible, most viable opposition, which has a prospect at least of taking the ANC out of power or so reducing it that its um, performance uh, gets changed somehow. I don't think it can happen except they are actually voted out and removed from government, but that's an argument or debate for another day. So I I would be amazed if um, the people who are supporting the Jardine initiative are somehow wanting to set up an opposition to the DA. I would think that's not on the agenda. But maybe there are, you know, to use the old cliche, many ways to skin a cat. And it, it can be that there is a certain ceiling on the DA's support, even the best possible circumstances, and despite the best endeavours. And maybe you need another entity to help uh, bridge the gap, as it were, between uh, what the DA can get on the best of days and what the combined opposition might get in an ideal set of circumstances. I, I guess that's the thinking here. And we'll have to see. And uh, But, I- I, you know, I-, I think there's a lot of uh, cynicism there's a lot of speculation, not all of it good. So I think it really is up to the change start now, the group to clearer sooner rather than later.
0: It was interesting because, you know, there was a lot of um, uh, sort of, I remember the word comrade being used a lot during <laughs> during the launch. And it was almost it was almost it was a sort of a lot of ANC light about the launch. Um, uh, people were sad at the direction the ANC had taking, taken taken, and it just struck me, you know, the DA is not a place I would have thought that you take that kind of sentiment into. I mean, you know, you you what you what you want to do in an election is to take the ANC out to destroy it in a sense politically or electorally. Um, and I just wondered whether, whether you know, whether the people that Roger Jordan is going to collect around him either would want to do that, or would find them, you know, would find it comfortable to be um, closely associated with the DA, which they've been really nasty about for decades now.
1: Well, I think just on your point about the comrades, we had the imperial comments of Johan Rupert at his AGM. Last week, he said yeah. people don't invest in a country where folk are around calling each other comrade, and and, and you know doesn't just apply to Johan Rupert. So you know I, I got a WhatsApp from a a, a donor of the DA who I have very high regard, for, who is not part of the Roger Jardine initiative, who was sort of outraged because uh, there was some report that Roger Jardine vows to keep seeking advice of the ANC elders was the headline of the report. I said, yes. well, how, how do you how do you do that? And at the same time, build an opposition to the ANC. It seems to be contradictory. I, look, I, I understand in a way the uh, the idea that they want to be a kind of a bridge, if you like, between leaving the ANC and going into something else. And maybe there, and I'm now putting the best gloss on this that I can from where yeah. I sit because I'm outside. Thing and maybe the thinking is: look, we've got to make it a bit warm and fuzzy. Because, uh, to quote the great Jacob Zuma, it's very cold outside the ANC. So you've got to create a sort of slightly warmer uh, reception pad for folks who are leaving the ANC. So so maybe that's why there is this uh, attachment to ANC nomenclature and so on. But, uh, you know, it's very hard. Look, we have no better example because I think, and you alluded to it in your intro, Peter, than the really seismic event that happened before the Jardine launch, and that was the resignation letter of Magusa Imsema. Well, even he, he resigned, I think, on Wednesday, by Sunday, leaving aside the ridiculous antics of that absurdist uh, Secretary General, Mr. Imbalula, even he by Sunday was trying to say, well, you know, I could possibly go back into the ANC. This is, you know, three or four days after... Detonating this nuclear bomb that he was yeah. leaving it. So, it, I think, look, I don't know people. It, it seems to be very easy to leave parties like the DA, as we see a lot of people coming and going there, and it seems very hard to leave the ANC for reasons of history or tradition.
0: Yeah, but uh, Tony, just put your put your old political hat back on your party leader hat. I mean, if you 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 know both John Steenhuisen, the party leader, and Ellen Ziller, the, the chief executive of the DA. Somebody has to have got to either one of them to to even begin to believe that some sort of association with the Jardine effort is actually possible. Um, and you know, I don't I don't know John Steen not that well, but I, th- I think I know Helen Ziller well enough to to believe that he would not want any part of this. I mean, is that um, I, I don't want you to gossip about your friends, but but um, you know some. There has to be a way in. Yeah, there's somebody. There has to be somebody to talk to, um, and I just wonder where you think that might be in the in the DA.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question, and obviously I don't have the answer, nor should I have, since I'm not backseat driving the DA. Yeah. Happily, uh, others yeah. uh, are much more involved in the front line than I am. But look, I, I, obviously I know Helen and John very well, and I, I think John. Well, he's the leader. Uh, So he is the ultimate decision maker, as leaders have to be. I think he's actually been very modest and uh, grown up about this whole initiative. First of all, by saying, actually, we want to have this moonshot pact. So it's not just the DA. It's the DA plus others who don't have to join. The DA might not even like the DA, but there's a national imperative here. So that was his initiative. And I, I think, you know, it's changed the political conversation. If not the political weather since it was launched in April, and then you've got him also saying, "Look, I don't need to be the president of South Africa." Now people yes. might say, "Well, that's simply an acceptance of reality or the blindingly obvious." But you know, if you're the leader of the principal opposition party, the, the the largest opposition party, and you take that stance, that shows, I think, a degree of both maturity and uh, modesty, because you're actually leaving an opening. And you're saying it doesn't have to be me. So, you know, I think a lot of our politics, not just in South Africa, but particularly in South Africa, is disfigured by me, 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 by one person, personality yeah. cults who think that they, you know, have some God-given, in one case, absolutely, God-given right to rule or to be elected. And I, I think, you know, John Steenhayson has, has gone in the opposite direction, saying, look, we need a pact to deliver change, to change the government and I don't have to be the lead figure in that pact. So once he said that and you can argue the merits about that, I think it showed, as I said, a degree of maturity and uh, self-reflection uh, because of the demographics and the dynamics of our political situation then others can come forward credibly and say well if it's not going to be him maybe uh, we should look at an alternative and I, and I think the Roger Jardine initiative is <clears throat> located in that idea. Now, I understand, because it's also been in the public domain, that there was, you know, a, a conversational series of serious conversations between uh, Roger Jardine and his team and the DA and their team. Now, whether what we saw on Sunday was in keeping with that conversation or was a, a dynamic that hadn't been anticipated or changed after they had the conversations, I simply don't know, Peter.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just in, in terms of the election that's coming up next year, which we think is going to be run in May sometime, um, what part, how seriously do parties take polls done a year before an event like an election? I mean, if you look at the 2019 election, all of the polls all of the polls I think that I see uh done the year before in twenty eighteen, uh predicted a much worse result for the ANC than uh, than they ultimately got um in the election. I think they won fifty seven point four percent of the vote, which, you know, given given the poor performance that they've subjected the country to over the years is not bad going. Um in a normal in normal democracies. I mean so we've been now being told that they might slip just below fifty or to forty-five. Um, how confident are you in the quality of those polls? And what what do you, what do parties do in the face of that kind of thing? Do you just ignore the polls and get on with your job, or the, the, do the polls kind of eat away? Not eat away, but do they fire you up?
1: Well, I, I have to say, <laughs> I left. Uh, the parliamentary and leadership politics in 2009. So the whole art and science of polling has evolved and the micro-targeting that they do now is something that was almost unknown in my time. And we used to have very crude polls to guide us and we did our own polling, which was reasonably accurate. The one thing a poll cannot do, obviously it's it's a photograph, not a moving picture, and the picture moves on depending on events. Um, so it's it's just a... It's a snapshot, mm. and it is useful, but I think the more detailed the poll is, and this is where I think the parties, or certainly the DA, as I understand it, and I'm sure the ANC, they do much more micro-focused uh, polls. So they try and find out where their supporters are, how motivated or demotivated they are, and what the messaging and the events or, which could get those people out to vote, or contrary, get them not to vote. So that's where the polling becomes very important. And so a lot of the polls that you see now, and I'm not going to uh, I'm not in a position to tell you which ones are more accurate than others, and there's a lot of back and forth about them, are not that detailed in terms of, you know, where the support is. I mean, to give you a, a very crude example, you live in Stanford, I live in Constantia and Cape Town. And most voters in uh, the Western Cape don't live in either Stanford or Constantia for obvious reasons. Yeah. But the fact is that if you know, 100% of the residents of Constantia and Stanford go and vote on election day, they're motivated either to go and vote for the opposition or to vote against the ANC. And only 10% of the voters say in an ANC stronghold like Google go and vote. Then even though Stanford and Constantia are very small compared to, say, Googs, uh, you're going to actually win the election simply on a difference of turnout, and yeah. it is on that differential turnout that the parties actually focus much more than the macro trend of saying, "Okay, well, the ANC's got you know 57 percent and the DA's got 22 yeah. yeah. percent." That's just so an overall this, broad, once again, sorry, with
0: your with your um, former hat on. How how does you how do parties approach, um, particularly opposition parties, approach elections like this? Because you know, if you look at the particular now. So They've got the DA, Action SA, um, the Freedom Front Plus, pretty much going for the same literally the same voters. Um uh, how does that how does that work? Isn't that isn't that part of our political problem in this country that we simply the opposition fights each other fights each other all the time rather than developing, you know, cogent, coherent policies to take on the ANC? Is to what extent Is the structure of our opposition
1: a problem? Oh, I think it's a a big problem, and uh, that's not a reflection on the parties. It's a a reflection on the structure. I mean, I always used to quote this figure because it's so true and it's so depressing, Peter. If you go back to the first election, you know, the good old days Mm. and glory days of 1994, and you said, well, what was the total non and there was no EFF, so you can just count the EFF from the ANC as one at that time, what was the total non-ANC opposition vote? Well, it was around 34%. The biggest party then was the National Party, followed by Encarta, and then the bits and pieces, including my part of the DP, was very much a small bit of that 34%. You know, we we, we now come to 2024, and if you look at the polls, well, the the non-ANC EFF opposition still is about 34% on a good day. So it it hasn't shifted that much in the overall. Of course, the opposition's complexion has changed because of the EFF, but the EFF, as Miletian Beg says, really is a tributary of the ANC. It might be an unattractive tributary, but they Mm. come from the same broad river or stream. So, the question is, and this to me is the key, and this is where an initiative like Roger Jardine can make sense. Now, it all depends on the execution and on the reception, which we have no knowledge a few days out with will happen. Yeah. Is what entity can be created, not to redivide or rearrange that 34% of the broad opposition vote in South Africa, but to take detract from the ANC token? So, you know, I don't care, frankly, speaking simply as a citizen now talking to you and as a, indeed, a person who founded the DA, I couldn't give two continentals to me, whether the entity is the DA, a no-name brand or something that can get those votes out of the ANC pile into the opposition uh, corner. That's what's needed. And... I think, now you, you mentioned policies, and I know, and I read your excellent uh, articles and columns. <laughs> I, I'm not sure a lot of people are driven by policy. Right? They should be in an ideal world of, you know, grown up democracy. I think a lot of people, a huge number of people, we saw it in the Brexit referendum, we see it in the Trump election wins and indeed in his defeat last time, and possibly again, people are driven by emotion. I think emotional connectivity, you know, EM only connect is what drives a huge amount of political decision-making. I mean, obviously the issues of which tribe you belong to, what your home life's about, but I think how you feel has got a lot to do with the choices you make on election day, rather than necessarily, you know, that this one has got a better economic policy than that one, which is a rational, analytical, rather cold-blooded way of looking at it. That doesn't mean parties shouldn't have good policies, but in terms of <clears throat> driving votes and determining turnout, I think emotional connectivity is a key. And if, if you connect with a wedge of voters who previously would have voted for the ANC and now don't, then you should be encouraged. That would be my view.
0: I mean, so you you did it your own way back in, in in the day with the fight back campaign, and you did. You 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 followed the advice you're giving me now that you have yeah. to you appeal to people's emotions. But to get Beyond the thirty four percent, parties are gonna to have to do their 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 you know, their work and their hard work where the ANC uh, is strong. And that's surely in rural areas. I'm talking about rural Transkei and the Eastern Cape and Pumalanga. And it's interesting that the the, the traditionally that's not DA territory and, and why waste a lot of money going into deepest Transkai? So they would apply possibly to action essay although they make a bit of a song and dance about you know having a black leader um same will be in the freedom front plus the, and i i doubt whether i have to say i doubt whether there'll be much of it from um from uh, change starts now with roger jardine but the, the parties the the small new parties that are, are trying to work away at the nc rural base are being kind of ignored and written off and i'm talking particularly about Songhez um Rise Mzanzi, which is spending all its time there and which may, if you know, it may not, we will, we, you know, only the election result will tell us. Um, but he's been kind of written off uh, because he doesn't want to join the MPC and, you know, business doesn't, doesn't rate him because he's not a, you know, uh, I, I have no idea. They don't think he's a politician. And I wonder whether. Writing off the people who are doing work where the, where the m p c parties are not working is a wise thing to do I
1: don't think anyone should be written off if they've got a an overall uh <clears throat> goal as you like, of changing the government of this country, which is disastrous and you know i have listened to some of the stuff Songhez z b said that sounds eminently sensible, although I would say this you've got to you know you've got to go fishing where the barracuda are, so it's very admirable to go into the rural areas, of course they much neglected and they treated really as they used to say um in the days of the national party de stem fear they almost they used to say in the national party didn't bother too much about the voters because like cattle, they would out and vote net, you know depending on where they lived literally oh. and the ANC's uttered utter arrogant disdain for you know the basic needs and Dignity of its own supporters is is, is breathtaking precisely because they think it doesn't really matter. We're going to, uh, they're going to vote for us come hell or high water. So, if ZB and others can can peel away those voters or some of them, I think that's an excellent thing. But you know, you've got to work out which voters are biddable. So, it's no good. I I could go anywhere in South Africa, Peter, you and I could go and put up a caravan and say, This is the Peter and Tony party, and we're going to give you this and do that. And people might be intrigued, and they might, you know, tick a, a list on which we offer. Would you consider supporting us? Because what we say is reasonable. But you've also got to know on election day um, that those people actually are prepared to make to change the voting habits of a lifetime. And you know, it, 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 not every group of voters is the same. Some people's attachment to their political choices is is very very strong, regardless of how badly. It's almost like an abused spouse. However badly they're treated, they still go back. But there are other voters, you know, particularly likely to be people who live in more uh, freestanding households. They're not living in a community setting. They're not in a village thing where there's a lot of community pressure. They make decisions on their own or as a family, who might be much easier to persuade. And I, what, what any political party's got to do. Should be doing, or indeed at this stage should have done, is to say, well, hang on, I've got only finite amount of resources. Where do I concentrate them? I'll give you an example from my own days in the nineteen ninety nine election, where the DP, which I led after ninety four, grew by, you know, I'm not boasting. In fact, by a higher percentage, but yeah. in that election than any other party has ever achieved in democratic uh, South, South Africa's history four hundred and fifty percent from a, a minute base so it went from one point seven percent to just under ten percent in one election, so it went up you know literally fivefold in a matter of five years yeah. but we knew the voters we had to get and they were essentially uh, you know keep what we had which was very little and add to them the immediate voters who were available you we know uh, we would love to have represent all South Africans, but there were very few black voters who were Remotely interested in leaving the ANC in 1999. There were plenty of floating voters who previously supported the National Party who were available. And we said, okay, those voters we can get at. So we had a slogan which got, helped get uh, appeal to them. But more, and we didn't change our policies or our leadership or anything. But we, and we said, well, how do we get them? And we said, well, we use radio adverts. But where do we have the radio adverts? We, 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 because through research, and we had smart people advising us, we worked out that the radio station which had the greatest crossover, in the greatest number of provinces in the uh, in the in the catchment area of which we happened to be, a radio station called Jacaranda. I'm not even sure if Radio Jacaranda still exists, but yeah, it, no, it, it was bilingual English Afrikaans. It, it had huge reach in Gauteng. It had big reach in Pumalanga, It had spillover into Limpopo. So we could get with one advert, we could target. um, A a whole range of of people living in different areas, but with the same message and it was the most effective use of our money. But we didn't do the research. We didn't know where those votes were, who they were. They able to be prized from their existing political base. Yes, they were. And we then went out to get them. So that's the level. It's all very well. And it's as an exercise in civic patriotism to go around South Africa into remote villages, show you care. I think that's great. But is it actually going to achieve a quantum leap on election day? That's perhaps more open to
0: doubt. Yeah. Tony, 9 million people, 9 million registered voters in the last election didn't bother to come out and vote. If, if, the, if a fraction of those, if half of those, a quarter of those 9 million people did vote this year, would it make any difference? And what would it take to get them out there? Was it money or is it effort?
1: It's probably both, but it's also... You know, I think those nine million who didn't vote, and and, and let's also add Peter, because actually this latest registration or voters' weekend was a bit of a failure because I fewer than half a million new people registered. I'm not talking about people who checked their addresses or changed their uh, domiciles. Yeah. Those are that's the existing pile of voters. I, I think what a lot of those people have done, and I'm really I'm here. I am entirely relying on my instinct, not on data is simply check out of the political process completely. They think, and it's not an unreasonable thought, I voted three or four times, or I voted once or twice, and nothing changed. My material conditions actually deteriorated. What's the point of voting at all? Now, the counter to that, which you imply in your question, Peter, is, well, if someone was there to inspire them, if someone could persuade them, if someone, you know, some charismatic figure, you know, emerged uh, who could actually galvanise them, then we might have a game change. Yes, in an ideal world, that's true. But I think a lot of those 9 million have simply opted out of constitutional democracy, which is a pity. And I don't know once you've opted out how easy or difficult it is to get back in. I don't know if you ever saw a movie. It's a brilliant film with Dominic Cumberbatch or Cumberband, whatever his name is, uh, called A Very, uh, called a, a very uh, English Civil War. Very, it's about Brexit and it's about Dominic yes. Cummings who he plays. And I mean, the genius and, you know, he's a fairly demonic figure in many ways of Dominic Cummings and his team in the Brexit campaign was to realize, actually, there are a whole, like South Africa, there are a whole group of people, tens of thousands, who never vote. Trump did the same. They never voted before. They hadn't voted for years. But because they had this emotional call to the blood, whether it was Donald Trump and MAGA or Brexit's, uh, you know, take back control. People who'd opted out of the political system, who didn't vote in British general elections, didn't register uh, in uh, in America to vote, suddenly went to go and vote. And they managed to massify their numbers, even though, you know, broad opinion was against them. So, uh, to answer your question, sorry for the long answer, if, no, no, yes, no. if someone could excite those 9 million, or some of those 9 million, or excite some of the millions who haven't, didn't bother to register to vote at all, then you're on a game changer, but let's see. I don't know. We haven't seen signs of that yet.
0: So I, I proposed uh, in a column the other day a sort of version of that, where we <clears throat> recognizing that we don't have a presidential system here, we can still run a presidential campaign. And if, if you know, if enough opposition parties were able now to say nominate somebody um, uh, and put them up in a presidential style campaign, even though the parties may fight on their own. Uh, against Saul so Ramaphosa, it might go better for them rather than you know this sort of itty bitty, every party scratching in its own patch. Um, uh, and you know, if we if you turn the election into something that we've never seen before, um, uh, with, with an attractive enough character at the top of it, would that make a difference?
1: Oh, I think it, I think it would excite a lot of people, it would, uh. It, it could. And I, I, I read your column and I thought, yes, that's interesting, uh, because it would it would create a focus for a campaign rather than saying, well, here are seven different parties you know, go and choose among them. Yeah. They've got a broad platform because people are more excited, I think, by personalities than platforms just in the nature yeah. of the human condition. So so yes. Look, you know, to quote Adrian Gore, who always says, I'm a data guy. I don't know where his daughter was in his negotiations yeah. with the government of the NHI, but I can argue about that. But, you know, he's right. He's a daughter guy. You've actually all got to be daughter guys, uh, women now. You've got to say, well, hang on. Let me go and test this proposition. If I put a face, not just a group of parties, against another face, and the one face is Rampo's and there's a question mark the other face, are you more likely or less likely to go and vote if you weren't intending to vote at all? And would that per So you've got to actually ask some questions. You've got to get the data in. And it's entirely data-led because, or it should be, because, you know, frankly, if, if I can, at the risk of boring you with a very, very brief uh, throwback to my own political history, you know, I um, started off life, and political life anyway, not quite life, in a, a party that long since disappeared called the Progressive
0: Party. i lost you, Tony.
1: Oh, hello. Can you hear me? He's there, Hi. Peter. Yeah, he's, he's there. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, so Peter can hear of us?
0: you. started off going, um, apologizing for going back to your own political yes. career.
1: So, yes, so my own political uh, you know, life, such as it's been mm. or was, I started off in, in a party called the Progressive Party, which doesn't exist mm. anymore. And then it became something else, the PRP, and then the PFP. And then just going back to this. In 1989, a decision was made to actually lose this whole progressive thing and create something called the Democratic Party. And there was a lot of pushback against that. People saying, I remember Helen Sussman was deeply opposed to it. They wanted to keep the progressive thing going. You know, emotional attachment, good tradition, didn't want to change all that. And then, to the extent there was any doubt at the time, the data was quite clear that the progressive federal party had run its course. It ceased to make as uh, opposition voters excited, you needed something new and different. And, you know, it was very crude in those days. The data supported that. So if the data said to me, said to whoever decides these things, look, run a presidential candidate with a presidential-style campaign and genuinely you can add 10% or 15% to that 34% traditional opposition constituency, I wouldn't hesitate for a nanosecond. I would do it. Depending, and that would be the starting point. Of course, the argument will be: Who will it be? Is it Jardine? Is it someone else? But if the data can persuad persuasively show now that such a move, such an initiative, will change uh, the momentum or increase momentum, change uh, move the dial, choose your cliche, then it should not even be hesitated around. In my view, yeah.
0: yeah. Tony thank you so much uh, my final question what, what you know all things being equal and no presidential campaigns but what what what's your early or late twenty twenty three prediction for next year's election Wow
1: well, well it you know that depends to to quite things i uh, yeah let me give you the let me give you a non uh, uh, let me give you a non answer to your question but here is the answer i think if the a n c achieves what you said at the beginning of this interview, that somehow, despite all the ruin that they've visited upon the nation, the, uh, the disabling of, of people's lives and life chances and everything else we know, if they still manage to scrape together either an outright win or cobble together a coalition of the Mickey Mouse uh, little parties and carry on governing, then there will be no future in this country that's worth contemplating. So uh, I would hope, this is, at this stage I hope, that actually, ANC gets a, a complete thrashing in the election because that is the only hope that this country has. We can argue about how it's done, and I hope it's done. But the great question is, will it be done? Don't
0: know. Yeah. Well, thank you, and thank you, and that's all we have time for. Tony Leon, thanks very much for being here. And to the good people who follow this podcast, thank you so much, and have a blessed and peaceful festive season. And please drive carefully. See you all back in twenty twenty four. It's going to be quite. Yeah bye bye